0: Welcome to Monsters and Demons, Cold Case MHS, where real education meets real life. I'm your host Randy Hubbard, and I'm also the instructor for the Mason High School Cold Case program, and we thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in to episode three, Hidden in Pictures. In the last two episodes, you listened to how this class and our projects got started, and then you heard some of the great work completed by several of our students on the Patty Ann Atkins case. I've been your host for the podcast, but I felt like I really needed some help. Today, I would like to introduce my new co-host, Kylie. Kylie's a senior at MHS, and she works in our student-run broadcasting crew called NBC. Kylie has helped me edit these podcasts and has given me some pointers along the way. And I just want to say welcome, Kylie, and thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me. I've actually been able to transfer my broadcasting and editing skills onto our class in the form of these podcasts. Mr. Hubbard and I like to sit down and discuss what each episode is going to look and sound like. He does most of the real work, but I'd like to say I'm good company. It's definitely different now, being on the forefront instead of just editing quietly in the background. But I'm excited to delve deep into these cases along with Mr.
0: Hubbard. Well, thanks, Kylie. Now let's get rolling with the show.
2: I mean, everybody in Kenton knew my mom. Always talk about how amazing of a person she was. I mean, like, everybody loved my mom. She was really funny. It it is kind of frustrating because I don't feel like I remember a, a lot about her as a person. I do remember all good memories with her. I remember that we were super close. The
3: 1990s were filled with new and exciting things. A decade where pulp culture took flight and technology advancements were on the continuous rise, the nation was constantly moving. Ohio was no different. Kenton is a small city located in the west central part of Ohio. Although it was small, every Friday night, crowds filled the stands to watch the Wildcats play football with hopes that the great team would soon make state champions, which they did in 2001 and 2002. Home to the Kenton Hardware Company, this blue-collar town is where married couple Angela Marie Steele and her husband lived with her two daughters. On a long rural road, their house sat surrounded by mostly land and trees.
0: If you can picture in your head an aerial view of this area, you'll see a checkerboard of dark green, light green, and several shades of brown, representing the vast farmland that surrounds the small town of Kenton, Ohio. Not everyone correlates small-town America as a peaceful place with a strong blue-collar mentality. You work hard all day to either relax in the evening or for some to go out and have a good time because you know what you earned it the small towns the dot harden wyandotte and marion counties all have this same kind of feel but one thing we have learned in cold case is that all towns big and small have secrets hidden in their pictures hidden
3: in, pictures, in words left unspoken. So far out with no close neighbors or town in sight, and so close to the border between Wyandotte County and Hardin County, a homicide had occurred. As you will listen along the podcast, clips of our conversation with Angela's oldest daughter, Megan, will be played throughout. Megan tells her story about what happened the day the crime occurred and their lives leading up to the crime. She also describes how this heinous crime has affected her and others. Megan has graciously allowed us to use these clips in her name to tell their stories. On
4: June 4th, 1999, daughter and her husband of Angela Marie Steele left that morning to meet the bus for her older daughter, Megan, to go to school.
2: That morning I woke up, she wasn't there. I just got ready for school and he just kind of was just like, I don't know, you know. <laughs> so we, where we lived, so far out in the country, we had like a half mile long lane to get back to our house. So essentially we got in the car, my bus stopped. They wouldn't come clear out to our house, so we had to go to this other house that was about a mile away. So we got in the car and we're driving, and I mean, it wasn't even a half mile from turning from our lane. And there was a, just a burnt car frame. It was like still smoking, you know what I mean? Because it had been burning for that whole night. We saw the burnt car frame, and I just asked if, I was like, was that there yesterday? And he was like, I don't know. And so he stopped and he got out and he like really checked it out. I mean, he went all around the car and was like looking in there.
1: You know when you have that feeling that something just isn't right? You feel as if something bad is about to occur or has happened.
0: Yeah, so I can't imagine what he's going through at that moment. He sees a burning car not far from his home. His wife didn't come home that night. There had to be some kind of sinking feeling of some sort. He didn't even take Megan to school. That actually seemed a bit strange to me. He
1: brought her directly back home he had to have known that something was wrong but did he know exactly what
2: my friend's mom actually just reminded me earlier that there was there were matches at the scene at that point too it was very clear that it was not a wreck i mean it was literally just pushed up against the tree i think the hood had been pushed back like maybe three inches. I mean, it was very clear that there was no impact, you know. So he had looked in there, he got back in the car and just said that he'd forgot something at home.
4: Once they returned home, Angela's husband first called his mom and then proceeded to call the police right after saying that he believes he saw his wife's burnt car along the side of the road. Minutes after the police and both sides of the family arrived at their home, after the police arrived, there was a sort of strange conversation between Angela's husband and her parents. Due to the material set in this conversation, we are unable to release the information. However, it continued to further the investigation. When police investigated the scene, they found that Angela's burnt body sat in the passenger seat of her car and according to the autopsy, her death was caused by blunt force trauma to the head with an unknown object.
1: There's a few strange things in the description of the crime scene and the autopsy report that caught our eye. One, the fact that Angela was found in the passenger seat of her own car doesn't really seem to add up to a car crash. Someone would have to have been driving her vehicle.
0: Yeah, and two, the fact that the cause of death was actually blunt force trauma to the head with an unknown object doesn't indicate a car crash either. Because from what we know, there's no sign she hit her head on the windshield or even through the passenger window
1: yeah it would appear that she was dead before the car
2: fire had even started i mean everybody in Kenton knew my mom and like every single person that i've ever run into first of all they always say that i look just like her but then they always talk about how amazing of a person she was i mean everybody loved my mom she was really funny she was really outgoing and I mean, it's frustrating because I don't feel like I have a lot of memories with just her as a mom because it's like like my memories are all from that situation. You know what I mean? And kind of like, what happened then? And I mean, I was only eight, but she was a great mom. And I think she had a really bad taste in guys. (laughs) I don't know, there's a lot that I don't understand about her decisions, but I mean, everybody, You could pretty much ask anybody that's lived in Kenton for a long time, and they all know my mom, and they all loved my mom.
0: Okay, Kylie, here's where some science starts to fit in. Getting to know your victim, who she was, where she worked, what type of person she was, and decisions she makes all lead to what we call victimology.
1: Victimology is actually something we learn very early in our class. We take the time to get to know our victim, even down to their finances and routines. One thing out of place or out of character can unfortunately place our victim in a bad situation
0: so in no way is victimology saying that the victim's at fault for what happened to them. It just shows that an unusual or risky behavior or being in the wrong place at the wrong time can put someone in harm's way.
1: For Megan's description, Angela was someone who was very well-liked and known in the community. But what stood out to me was her description of her mother's poor choice in men. This could potentially be a behavior that could have led to something happening to her. We've learned in class that two of the biggest motives in crimes like this are love and money. This is just one example of how love can be the factor that can put a person in a dangerous situation.
5: These are just a few heart-spoken words describing Angela. Although we have not met her, the conversations we've had with Megan have brought us closer and have emotionally entwined us with Angela's life. Angela Marie Steele was a 30-year-old, well-known female in Kenton, Ohio. She was pretty tall, about 5'8 and 130 pounds, with long blonde hair and blue eyes. She worked nights at the local varsity club as a waitress. From some of the research we have determined, she worked at the varsity club that was 15 minutes away from her home. She worked night shifts sometimes from 4 or 5 p.m. until 12 or 1 a.m. in the morning. She had two daughters, one age 8 and the other age 6. The oldest daughter, Megan, was from a previous relationship and the youngest, whose name we will not disclose, was the daughter of the current husband.
1: Family dynamics often play a role in how people react to situations. Sometimes in a blended family and even actually in a non-blended family, resentful feelings can develop.
2: It was my stepdad. He married my mom when I was two. And there, there was a lot of issues with him in like his treatment with me and stuff when they even first got together. You know, he didn't treat me the best when they first got together. And that was a concern that like my grandma had.
0: As you know, there are always many sides to a story like this, but we only have information given to us by Megan. Due to this case being an active investigation, we don't have information from other sides. You will hear several disclaimers during this podcast. Again, there has not been a suspect identified, and we are in no way accusing anyone of the crime. We just don't have any other information to go on. If anyone out there has different views or information, please contact the Kenton Police or the Wyandotte County Sheriff's Office if you do not feel comfortable with that, contact us, and we'll pass on that information.
5: She was well taken care of and very outgoing. She had lots of friends in town. Angela always appeared put together and her nails done by her favorite nail tech, who will come in later. Like many women, Angela also wore jewelry. She wore a set of rings on her hand which she never took off, no matter what. We can assume they are middle class due to where she lived with her husband and due to her husband's job as a farmer. This very sudden death was not taken lightly by either daughters and has haunted their family to this day. Through photographs shown to us by the family, we were able to see a caring and nurturing mother she was to her daughters. A photo shows both daughters in her arms dressed as angels, while Angela looks over them.
0: Now that's some symbolism there.
1: I feel like this is one of those things about certain cases that kind of just makes your skin crawl a little bit.
0: Yeah, when I received the text message that had the picture and the description with it, man, it gave me goosebumps.
1: And the fact that this was taken just two months before Angela was found dead was seriously
0: creepy. Well, and you know what? Maybe that was a sign that Megan's supposed to continue looking at her mother's death.
3: Yeah, my selfishness keeps me silent. After Angela's body was found, the police began their investigation. We are unclear on the exact order of the investigation. However, we were able to find some key sources. For our group, we had actually initially started on a different case, but due to lack of information, we were kind of at a dead end. It was super disappointing, but right as we were feeling really lost, our teacher, Mr. Hubbard, had received an email from Angela's daughter, Megan. A group from last year had actually started with this case and found a petition for it, trying to reopen Angela's case. There, they left our cold case email in hopes that someone might reach out with more information on it, and it wasn't until a year later that Megan had reached out. As soon as Mr. Hubbard had received the email, he offered up the case to us.
0: This is exciting for us because usually we have to reach out to people to get information, which often is difficult to get, but Megan came to us. Now this gives us a more personal connection to the case and provides us with information that you just can't get by searching on Google. This also makes us more emotionally attached to Megan and Angela and their story.
3: Right when we got it, we were super excited about it and tried to find some hardcore facts. Something we noticed was that there wasn't really much information about the case. There were really only three main sources regarding it. The Ohio Attorney General profile, a short YouTube video, and the petition, which is how we got into contact with Megan. At that point we had realized why the previous group had hit a dead end. We wanted to get in contact with the previous group to just try and see what information they had and see how far they got. We were able to get in contact with them and there one of the members told us that they had been rejected from a FOIA request and just basic information. She was also able to give us some ideas on what we could look into and some things we could potentially ask Megan.
1: One of the most apparent things about our class is that it is made up of seniors meaning that at the end of the school year, they won't be returning to work on their cases. At this point, we want to inform those out there listening that we won't just leave a case with significant solvability and lose ends. The goal would be to continue research into a specific case with a new group of students who can learn from the previous. This was just one example of doing so.
4: We were able to set up a meeting with Megan, and she was our main source of information throughout this process. Angela was found in the passenger seat of her own car that was pushed against a tree and appeared to look like a crash. The hood of her car appeared to be manually pushed up with no damage to the tree it was against, and the fire was determined to be arson, most likely caused by an accelerant in the passenger side. After the accident, her husband was asked to take a polygraph test and later refused. Megan was also questioned by police, but only with her stepfather's presence.
2: He immediately told them that he didn't want to take a lie detector test,
1: That actually caught my attention a bit. Why would a supposedly innocent person bother denying a polygraph?
0: Well, actually, someone not taking a polygraph doesn't necessarily prove they're guilty. Polygraphs are not considered to be reliable in court anyway, and a good defense lawyer, they're going to tell him not to take it.
1: Yeah, I could see where I would be pretty nervous to take a polygraph. I've actually heard of people lying their way through polygraphs anyway.
2: And he never did that. But something that I would really love to find out from the detective or as I would just love to know if they actually interrogated him because that's something I I don't ever remember him leaving to go be interrogated I know that when they talked to me he was very insistent that he be there and of course they had to let him because he was my only parent at that point mm-hmm. point. and they they talked to me actually in my aunt's house which was right next to my grandparents house at the time I just don't ever remember them, you know, doing an actual interrogation and questioning him, you know, which they definitely could have. Like I said, I was eight, but Mm -hmm. that's just something that no one knows or anybody that I've talked to can really answer.
4: For what she remembers, police officers and investigators did not spend much time at their house. As we talked earlier, Angelo was never seen without her rings and always had them on her hand. Why on this particular day were her rings taken off, removed on the day she died?
2: My mom wore a whole bunch of rings. She wore tons of rings on both hands. I wore a few of her rings like after she died and had them put on necklace and stuff, but she never took them off. I'm the same way. I don't ever take my rings off in the shower, especially like my wedding ring and stuff when I sleep. I just never take it off and she was the same way. So, he claims, you know, that she had never came home that night, that she was at work and he never saw her again, and he woke up and, oh, my God, she wrecked or something. But he had in his possession all of her rings. What they had tried to do back then was there was a camera behind the bar at the varsity club, and there is video of her. But they kept saying back then that, the, I mean, and this was 1999, the more that they blew it up, like, they could not definitively see if she had her rings on her hands.
1: The rings seem to be a very important piece of the puzzle. If they could just enhance the video of her and see the rings on her fingers, we would at least know she had them on when she left the bar.
0: Yeah, and this is why many of these cases don't get solved. There's evidence to be found, but due to the technology of the time period, they just couldn't confirm it.
6: No, me. could ever break me.
4: so Megan was later adopted by Angela's parents and the youngest daughter to stay with her father. They were separated that evening after her death of their mother megan and her sister didn't have much connection to each other and it seemed that both sides of the family wanted that as megan grew up with her grandparents she remembered receiving phone calls for the most part she said that they consisted of silence but one in particular was different her grandmother had answered this call and she remembered that she picked up the phone the caller had said they knew what had happened to angela
1: that's the kind of stuff that really bothers me People taking the time to make what they consider a funny joke actually ends up hurting the investigation for the family in the end. False calls are something I feel like we hear about all the time. Many cases experience this, and they can divert the investigation in the wrong direction.
5: Angela's family quickly tried to get more information from the caller, but right after, they hung up. The grandparents' phone had been tapped by the police, but they were never able to get anything from it. Although Megan was young at the time, over the years, she had contact with many of her mother's friends and had many years listening to her grandmother talk about the case. Her grandmother never lost hope and spent the last years of her life trying to figure out what happened. One thing that took us aback was about the conversation we had with Megan, having shortly after her stepfather had called the police. According to Megan, there was an unusual conversation between her stepfather and grandparents that left serious questions about Megan's demise. Due to the sensitivity of the information, we are not able to release this. We know it must have been hard for Megan to talk about everything that had happened to her and the information she gave us was very beneficial. After each of our talks with Megan, we would listen to the audio of the meeting again and just pick through it all and write down a lot of the big details. We would sometimes try to even just write out all of the audio just so we could see it all in person. And really be able to process it all after that we would come up with more questions and have them for the next meeting
4: anytime a homicide occurs the people closest to the family are looked at first using information from laura petler and lpa teams we were able to use what they call the staging trilogy to come up with multiple estimated persons of interest and or reasons why the crime occurred
0: Dr. Laura Pettler and her team are famous for the research in crime scene staging. Dr. Pettler was gracious enough to spend a great deal of time with me a couple summers ago to explain things that we could use in class. Basically, crime scene staging is when a suspect sets up a crime to make it look like an accident or that someone else was responsible for that crime.
4: Currently, there are no known suspects to the crime. The staging trilogy, however, has been a useful aid to guide our thoughts. This tool consists of three key points and are placed in the shape of a triangle. On each vertex of the triangle, there sits a title, conflict, victim discovery, and the 911 call. If we look at the conflict point, we are able to take information from talking with Megan. We are able to find out that Angela and her husband were planning on separating. The day school ended, Angela had planned to leave and take her two daughters to stay with a friend. This plan was due to multiple fights and arguments between the couple. As mentioned before, Angela's nail technician would come into place. Megan was able to tell us that she had spoken to many of her mom's friends over the years, her nail tech being one. She mentions to Megan that she remembers a time Angela had come into her nail salon to get her nails fixed after having them recently done. Her nails had been broken, broken not by accident but by force.
3: On one particular night after Angela had told her husband about the plans to leave with the kids, he had waited for her to come home from work. A heated argument took place and he then proceeded to shove her up against a wall, breaking her acrylic nails. He then proceeded to tell Angela over her dead body would she take his daughter away from him. The nail tech did in fact report this statement to the police after Angela's death took place.
1: I think this is one of the things that is crucial in all cases. We know that understanding the victim is key to an investigation and sometimes this understanding can be from studying their behavior. Witnesses can offer insight to these everyday behaviors and what seems to be out of the ordinary. Without this particular nail technician's report, the relationship between Angela and her husband may be more of a mystery to investigators. The importance of coming forward is infinite. If you feel that something is a little off, report it.
2: I just talked to one of her friends earlier. Her nail tech actually made a statement to the police that she had come in to get her nails fixed, her acrylic nails. Mm -hmm. And she had said she was friends with her, you know, beyond just being her nail tech. But she had told her that when she told Mike that she was planning on leaving, that he had actually waited because she worked at the varsity club, which is a bar. So my my mom's friend, Stacy, actually told me earlier that she would always get home between one and three in the morning. She always took the same route home. And she said that Mike, I mean, he was very controlling, so she said that he would drive by the varsity club all the time to see if she had left yet. He would go in and you know, kind of like sit there and sit there while she was working or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he had waited on her to get home from work a couple weeks before she died. He was waiting on her in the dark, and when she came in, he shoved her up against the wall and broke her nails and told her that over her dead body was she going to take his daughter.
3: Although we were able to receive this information, we want to put emphasis on the point that no known suspect has been named in this case. Moving to the next vertex of the triangle, we have victim discovery. As we had pointed out before, while driving to Megan's bus stop, her husband and Megan came across a badly burnt car. This car was Angela's car. Her husband got out of his car, leaving Megan in to closely examine the burnt car. After he left the car, he returned home, and that is where we hit the third and final vertex of the triangle, the 911 phone call. We know from speaking with Megan that once they returned home, he proceeded to call his mother and then call the police. Unfortunately, we do not have the exact 911 phone call, but knowing who called is a key step. Although there is no known suspect to the crime, Using this staging trilogy was an immense help to guide our research and further our thought. Throughout our research and speaking with Megan, we were also able to find out that there were rumors regarding another man in Angela's life.
0: Now that type of information could be very important. As Kylie expressed earlier, if anyone has knowledge of who this person was or what they might have been fighting over, please tell the Wyandotte County Sheriff's. Any information could help the investigation.
3: While we don't know if the rumors are true and there is no known suspect at the time this is another key piece of information that furthered our investigation
5: some of the highlights of this case include after many months of gathering information from the police department and sources angela marie Steele's death was concluded as a homicide with evidence leading up to a set-up car fire a block away from her home the husband and eldest daughter were the ones to find her car He called his mom before calling the police. Once the police came, they started the investigation process at their home and sought for possible outcomes of the supposed death of Angela. During the autopsy, they determined Angela's death was caused by blunt force trauma to the head and was pronounced dead before the car fire. It was later found out that Angela did not have her rings on because there were no trace of them at the scene, yet they were found in the possession of the husband later on. Angela Murray Steele's case is still ongoing to this day, with no suspects, and we are hoping with this podcast we can shed a light onto this cold case. If anyone knows any information regarding this case, please contact Detective Lieutenant Kerwin Wisely of Wyandotte County Sheriff's Department at kwisely, k-w-i-s-e-l-e-y, at u s. And if for some reason you are unable to reach them, contact us at ColeKays at I would
0: like to thank Isabel, Jairi, and Kay for all their hard work researching Angela's case. I would also like to thank Megan for reaching out to us and being so open about the things that have happened in her life and within her family. We also understand that a lot of this information is private, and we are very grateful to have the opportunity to personally get to know Megan, along with her mother's case. I would also like to thank my co-host, Kylie, for joining me today and for all of the help that she's given me on these podcasts. So thanks, Kylie.
1: It's been such a great experience getting to hear and learn more about all these cases. I'm very thankful for Mr. Hubbard and the opportunity to discuss cases like these.
0: Thank you for joining us on Monsters and Demons.
1: Next time, we'll be traveling to Shelby, North Carolina, where we'll hear the story of Shelby's sweetheart and her not-so-sweet walk in the dark.
3: Something's a name you just have to just have to we just had to grow a big skin the walls had to come up
4: now when stuff come out it don't even shock us this is worse than death because at least with death you've got closure no idea why she left either she could have been needing someone uh, either
2: she was running from something or uh, or she just woke up and decided to take a walk in the middle of the night
0: the theme song, Monsters and Demons, was written and performed by former MHS student, Miss Jenna Brandt. This song and all her music can be found on all music streaming media, as well as on Facebook and YouTube. The artwork for this podcast was also created by a former MHS student, Miss Emma Holbert. Editing was done by Kylie and myself. Special thank you to Miss Jill Puma for reminding me to put all my email addresses, Twitter accounts, phone numbers, and important information on the show notes that go along with this podcast. Also, special thank you to Mr. Connor and several of his NBC anchors for taking the time to train the Cole Case MHS students on how to perform these podcasts. Make sure to tune in next time to Monsters and Demons, Episode 4, Walk in the Dark.
6: Monsters and Demons in the darkness can't see the end. Now my guard's up, I won't get my heart up Nothing sharp cuts and I won't let my walls down now now No boogeyman, slender man Slenderman could ever break me I've been shook so many times so nothing's gonna shake me Can't say I'm not afraid, the terror is consuming Yeah you did me wrong, all you ever did was use me Even if I hide away, the monsters find me anyway If I choose to sin today, i let the evil get to me Darkness can't see them in the light. You can't see them. They don't wanna be seen. Hidden in pictures, in words left unspoken. If there can be beauty, it must have a shadow. I've been thinking too much about keeps me silent yeah yeah my demons are all around me yeah yeah don't want me to make a sound Oh no 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 boogeyman slender man could ever break me i've been shook so many times so nothing's gonna shake me can't say i'm not afraid the terror is consuming yeah you did me wrong all you ever did was use me even if i hide away the monsters find me anyway if i choose to Today I let the evil get to me I could spend my time Believing you for what I do Or I could empathize Cause I know you have your monsters too Monsters and demons In the darkness can't see